Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, buddies, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I have a treat for you. I have a conversation with Dr. Jamie Seaman. She is a board-certified OBGYN, obstetrician and gynecologist with a background in nutrition, exercise, and health sciences. She's also a current fellow in integrative medicine and a board-certified ketogenic nutrition specialist. So what did we talk about today? Well, we talked a lot about insulin resistance and the ultimate health challenge, pregnancy. (laughs) So we talked about preconception, the importance of nutrition preconception. We talked about how pregnancy is basically a state of peripheral insulin resistance. We talked about some of the different stages of insulin sensitivity throughout the different trimesters. So we talked about uh, first, second, third trimester. We talked about postpartum as well. We talked about um, why we shouldn't be fearing ketones either uh, in mom in the third trimester and postpartum and in baby. So we talked about the importance of prioritizing protein, having healthy fats and reducing carbohydrates uh, as a preconception tool, or if you're somebody who's already been following a diet like the Estima diet, which is a female-centric ketogenic diet, to continue what you're doing through pregnancy and beyond. We also touched on hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Dr. Seaman's own experience after having her first baby was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. And we talk about how women with more than one child, and it's usually mom of two, mom of three, mom of four, um, we tend to see thyroids that have uh, that become hypothyroid. And we talk about some of the reasons why that might be happening. We talk about some of the fallacies around needing carbs in order to maintain and have a healthy thyroid. And we talk about some other mechanistic, um, uh, plausible mechanisms as to why the thyroid is not working well. And we discuss estrogen as a key player there as well. We talk about the societal pressure to bounce back. So many women, either self-imposed or from family members, et cetera, uh, talk about how they feel this need and this pressure to get their ba- pre-baby body back. We talk about that. And then we talk about uh, infertility as well. So we finish talking with female-centric um, uh, causes of infertility, bearing in mind that, of course, there are male-centric reasons, but we focus really on uh, female-centric reasons of infertility. 
I think that this is a incredibly important conversation for anybody, whether you are someone who ha- is thinking of having a baby, has just had a baby, um, is thinking of having another baby, or you have girlfriends uh, that are having that are struggling to get pregnant if they want to, please share this episode far and wide to all of our women. And as as I mentioned in the show, women are the soil. Men are the seed. Women are the soil. And we want to be optimizing for our fer- our fertility, that fertile soil that allows us to continue the propagation of the species. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jamie Seaman. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Jamie Seaman, aka Dr. Fit and Fabulous, I am just tickled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Esma. I'm so excited to be here. I had so much fun on your show, um, which I know has just recently um, aired at the time of this recording. And um, I think that we're going to have a really great conversation. I know that you are uh, one of the world experts, certainly in terms of um, meat eating and carnivore as it relates to uh, metabolic health and healing. And of course, in your um, in your field of focus, which is seeing women, pregnant women, um, and uh, being an OBGYN. But before we we kind of, there's so many, we were talking in the pre-chat, all the places that I kind of want to see if we can cover today. But before we do that, I would love for my listeners to, uh, if they are not familiar with, um, with your work and who you are, how did you, why did you, where did you fall into becoming an OBGYN? How did that, where was that, uh, in your storyline? What's your origin story around that? Yeah. I think it's so interesting how we end up where we are because there, there always is some sort of personal influence, I think, that kind of drives us into our passions. And I, as a little girl, I wanted to go into medicine. My mother was a nurse and she was the one that really kind of pushed me towards becoming a doctor. She said, I think you should just, she said, if I had to do it all over again, I I would have just went to medical school. I was the kid that was asking for band-aids and I had to get stitches as a child, wanted to watch them put the stitches in my head. I was always super fascinated, you know, by medicine. And uh, my mom was kind of the leader of our family. She left nursing and went into healthcare administration and was really a great mentor for me, you know, for being a strong woman and kind of leading the family. My dad, on the other hand, was an athlete and I was also an athlete. So I grew up, I went to college, I played collegiate softball uh, for the University of Nebraska, met my husband in college, went on to medical school and 
during medical school, my husband wanted to start a family, which was always in my, my plans as well. So I got pregnant during medical school. Now to back up just a tiny bit, I grew up as a three sport athlete, but I grew up in the eighties and nineties and bless my mother's heart. She was in medicine, but we really lived kind of a convenience world, right? I was like eating hamburger helper sometimes without the hamburger, um, a lot of, you know, fast food. And when I went to college, I got a degree in nutrition and exercise science. So that was kind of my first, um, exposure as far as nutrition and what food does for our body. So then here I am going from medical school, you know, from being a collegiate athlete to medical school, I'm sitting in the classroom, I'm much more sedentary, and now things are catching up with me. And I thought, well, I'll just count calories. So I'm counting calories, but not paying attention to the nutrient density of foods, get pregnant with my first daughter, fail my glucose testing. And after my daughter was born, was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. So I go on thyroid meds, I go on to have two more pregnancies. Uh, Once again, totally insulin resistant, glucose intolerant, had three nine pound babies. Thankfully I'm healthy, had three amazing births, two of them completely naturally. But after my third daughter was born, I had a horrible tragedy happen in my life. My best friend passed away March of 2015 of a rare fungal infection of her lungs. Doctors kind of missed the diagnosis. And it was a pivotal point in my life where I realized that um, I was really taking life for granted that no day is ever given to us. Every day that I wake up is an amazing day to be alive and breathing and, and doing things. But I felt like I really needed to live my life with a different purpose and a different passion. But how could I be in medicine and be this leader if I really wasn't walking the walk and talking the talk? So in 2015, I set out on a personal mission to kind of figure out nutrition again. I'm like, wait, I have this degree. I have a medical degree. I can't figure it out. How can my patients figure it out? So I started playing with my diet. It was started with whole 30 and then paleo. And eventually because of my insulin resistance really settled on a very low carb ketogenic diet and things really started clicking with my health. Um, I was able to get off of my thyroid medication. All of my metabolic markers improved. It was like the lights turned on in my brain again. And so I started really incorporating it into my clinical practice and I started to see results with patients. Now, this is at the time that keto was kind of the most Googled word in 2018. Things were taking off in the low carb space, but of course, within the medical community, not super widely accepted. People thought I was crazy. I'm sure there's a few that still think I'm nuts, but I couldn't deny, you know, results that I was seeing. And so, um, I went on to complete a fellowship in integrative medicine, just really understanding that some of these other modalities could really serve our patients as they had served myself. So completed that fellowship at the University of Arizona, Dr. Andrew Wiles um, fellowship there, and then became one of the first doctors in the world to become a board certified ketogenic nutrition specialist. Um, The evolution of kind of my diet, I'm very animal based now. I eat very high protein and I've realized some of the nuances with ketogenic therapy that it's really not for everybody. Everybody can do it a different way. Everybody's bodies respond a different way. So we can totally dive down all of those holes. But I think that, you know, being an OBGYN, the reason I chose that subsect of medicine is that I, I do love being a surgeon. I love using my hands, but I love women. And it just, it, as the years have gone by, God gave me three daughters now. Um, I love that it's a happy area of medicine. But when we start talking about some of these preventative approaches, prenatal nutrition is so important because what we're finding out about epigenetic influence, meaning everything that a pregnant woman does, not only what she eats, but her stress levels, the environment she lives in, how she moves, 
all of these things can actually alter her baby's DNA. So when you think about the the impact of generations to come, not just her baby, but her baby's babies and things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about the level of impact you could really have, you know, on your community, on these women, on the world. When, when we talk about these things. I think that is so profound. And I, you know, as you were telling your story, I was reminded of, you know, when I was going through uh, chiropractic school as well, I remember remarking and many of the students at the time, same thing. It's like, we've never been more unhealthy. Like how ironic that we're getting a health degree and we're all sitting on our butts like for 14, 16, you know, and right before exams, it's like 20 hours, you know, before those exams and particularly board exams is not something I ever want to repeat. (laughs) again. But I think in some ways it also gives us empathy because this is how many of our patients live period. Like you, you know, before you went into medicine, you know, an athlete, very active, used to moving your body. And then all of a sudden you're in this environment where you're sitting in class and then maybe you're in a lab. So maybe you're walking around cadavers or something, but like, you know, you're in a lab and then you're back to the library to study what you just learned over the past eight hours. So I think that, um, although it was very difficult physiologically, mechanistically, and I would say emotionally as well, in many ways it gives us, it, it sets the, for, for those of us who choose to you know, claw back our health after getting a professional degree, I think that it's also um, a, a, a marker of empathy for us to be able to understand our patients a little bit better as well. And your story with your, with your girls you know, first I can't, I had one, uh, one friend who was pregnant in school. I do not know how you were pregnant and got through medical school. A very supportive partner, a very supportive partner. That's incredible. I mean, that is just incredible. Um, but since we're, since we're talking about pregnancy, of course, this is the bread and butter, if you will, or maybe that's the inappropriate term, you know, the saying, but like it's (laughs) the ghee, it's it's the ghee. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. More butter, less bread. It's sort of the, the crux, if you will, of your, practice. Let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned preconception and I'd like to start there and then we can sort of wade into the waters of pregnancy and why I think preconception is so important is just what you just mentioned. Some of these, the, the, you know, to have uh, a chemical environment that is optimized for baby, you know, I don't think, and maybe you can comment on this, but going on a ketogenic diet while you're pregnant uh, or potentially postpartum you know, maybe not the ideal time to have an adaptation, you know, a fat adaptation period occurring. You have loss of electrolytes and there's sort of a whole other like chemical cascade that kind of happens. But let's talk a little bit about preconception. What are some of the uh, hallmarks or guideposts that, you know, if it was, you know, unicorns and sparkles and rainbows and you could choose whatever it was that your patients were uh, eating and consuming, how might you structure um, someone's nutrition and potentially uh, movement in order to optimize for pregnancy? Well, the unfortunate part is that we don't see a lot of women for preconception counseling. So a lot of times the first time we see somebody is when they actually come in pregnant and because of how, you know, Western medicine is set up a lot of times, you know, they're six weeks pregnant. We confirm the pregnancy, you know, we do their new OB ultrasound eight weeks. By the time you're eight weeks along, a lot of critical processes have already happened within the development of the embryo. And so we really need to think about this months, if not years prior to conceiving. And so for anybody listening, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, you need to start thinking about these things a year or two prior. So how I 
how I counsel people. I think of it as like the five pillars and you have to address all five pillars. One is nutrition. Nutrition, we have to think about not only eating adequate calories, like the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. If it's irregular, if you're missing it, there's something wrong. Your body is telling you through these nutrient sensing pathways, this is not a good time to conceive. So, you know, we, our, our body is, is constantly sensing the environment. If it thinks there's a scarcity of resources or there's something going on now with that said, very unhealthy people get pregnant <laughs> too. Um, but, but through nutrition, we need to think about nutrients because you're about to build an entire human and the nutrient requirements in pregnancy are much higher than outside of pregnancy. And then breastfeeding, they're even higher. So we really need to prioritize in nutrition, not only adequate calories, but adequate minerals and macronutrients. And when we think about macronutrients, carbs, protein, and fat, right? There's our three big macronutrients. The problem we have with the standard American diet is it's very heavy in processed foods, which are high in processed fats and in carbohydrates like flours and sugars. So the easiest thing you can do is immediately eliminate all of the processed food. This includes like sodas, juices, anything that comes in a box, box a bag, or a jar. Okay. Things with long ingredient lists, the more you can stick to real whole foods, you're going to be doing pretty well. We do have to prioritize protein because like I said, the protein requirements are higher in pregnancy. So you don't want to be coming into pregnancy with an amino acid deficit because your body is going to take whatever resource it needs. And if it has to take your bicep to grow your baby, it's going to do that. And the last thing we want you doing is, is, is losing lean body mass. And then when it comes to fat and carbs, I think of those like energy calories. So, you know, outside of pregnancy, like you said, if people want to try keto, try low carb, great. You have to decide which horse you're going to ride or figure out how to balance them evenly. I think that's hard to do in today's world. Um, but for most people, 80% of people in America, 88% by some studies have abnormal metabolic markers. They have broken mitochondria and it's really due to the abuse of processed fats and processed carbs. And so if you want to eat a lower carb diet, I think that's completely fine. Fats are really important because our sex steroids are literally made from cholesterol. So your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, literally made from cholesterol. So a super low fat diet isn't good either, but figuring out how to balance those and just really getting it from real whole foods. And then when it comes to movement, exercise is great, but exercise is a purposeful stress on the body. So we don't want to be overtraining. This isn't the time to sign up to run a marathon. <laughs> We need to understand that exercise and recovery are just as equally as important. And I've seen women struggling with infertility, you know, um, overtraining sometimes. Then sleep. Sleep is one of the most undervalued parts of our health. Um, it's something that we just take for granted. We think we lay down, the head hits the pillow, we sleep, we wake up. Great. Um, sleep is when a lot of our hormones are made. Um, our bodies, including our menstrual cycle, are very much tired to circadian rhythm. So abnormalities with melatonin and cortisol um, can inhibit women from the ability to get pregnant. So sleep should really be prioritized. And because about six years postpartum, women have major sleep disturbances for almost six years postpartum. I was just commenting on, on someone's IG post about that today. And then the other two uh, pillars that I like to talk about are stress. This can be physical stress, emotional stress, psychological uh, these are things that we have to address because stress is at the root of a lot of people's health problems. You could be eating this amazing diet and exercising. And if you're in a toxic relationship or job or something, and you don't have resiliency from that, that's going to, that's going to be a major impact. And, and when I talked about epigenetics, literally changing your baby's DNA, 
stress can change your baby's DNA. Like it's a real thing. So something we also have to address. And then the fifth one is environment and environment's kind of my catch-all. But what I like to talk about with environment is that our skin is our largest organ and the makeup and cosmetics we use, the shampoos, the detergents, the cleaners, the Clorox wipes, all the things, you know, especially in a COVID pandemic timeframe, our skin absorbs these things. And, and some of these things are endocrine disruptors. They can really disrupt women's estrogen metabolism and things like that. So it's just something that we want to think about before we bring this new little human in that's crawling around on our carpet, touching all the things, putting all the things in their mouth. So we really want to clean up our environment as much as we can. A huge one is plastic. So um, not touching thermal receipts, not using plastic um, food containers, especially never heating food in plastic switching to glass and stainless steel. These are all things that women probably never even thought about prior to getting pregnant. Completely. And I think that, um, you know, you mentioned women and recovery and over-exercising, let's say. And I have also noticed this to be true, particularly in the context of weight loss. And pregnancy, I think there can be a time where people are very sensitive about, you know, weight gain. And then like, there's this sort of post baby bounce back, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about sort of societal and self-imposed, um, you know, expectations around that. But so often we see this sort of orthorexic, orthorexic behavior where they are absolutely adhering to, you know, a caloric intake that is far below their metabolic needs. They're over-exercising and it's usually cardio. I find that it's hard to overdo. I, I don't often see it anyway, where I don't see people saying, you know what, I train, I was doing legs seven days. I did legs seven, like it's just physically yeah. like impossible. You can do maybe two days of legs and then you, you know, you need to back off. Um, so I, I see this sort of orthorexic behavior, which is to your point, it, you know, there's these acute, there's these, all these little acute stressors that then if they're not resolved, become these chronic low grade inflammation and stress in the body, which of course can affect fertility, but it can also affect, you know, if you do get pregnant, um, it can also affect the baby, um, as well, which I think is important, an important consideration as well. Absolutely. So let's talk, let's talk about, um, let's talk about pregnancy, um, in and of itself. I was telling you in the pre-chat, um, before we started that I, uh, would see a lot of pregnant, uh, patients, uh, in my clinic when I was still in physical practice, I would also see a lot of babies as well. And I, I had a bit more, a bit more of like a mechanical, uh, focus in that, you know, looking at the tension of the round ligaments bilaterally, trying to reduce intrauterine constraint, making sure that the sacrum had, um, you know, you know, the mechanical movement of the sacrum was, we were trying to optimize for birthing. And then when the baby, you know, when mom gave birth and, you know, came back into the clinic, it was often like, you know what, they were pulling on baby's head a little bit, uh, or it was forceps delivery or whatever delivery. And now, you know, baby only likes to breastfeed on my right breast. She can't seem to turn her head to the left or whatever it is. Um, right. so I would see a lot of, uh, more mechanical, uh, presentations of, Pregnancy and, you know, pregnancy um, in and of itself, of course, is, um, you know, a state of insulin resistance, right? It's a state of peripheral insulin resistance. And this is why these pillars that you're outlining, I think, are so important for us to be considering preconception. But if if you get pregnant and you show up to Dr. Jamie's office and you haven't done, you know, you haven't optimized for that, 
Let's talk about what happens in some of the different stages of pregnancy. So I know, and I've, I've heard you talk about this before, where in the different trimesters, of course, we have a different affinity or a different sensitivity, if you will, mm-hmm. um, to insulin. So talk a little bit about, uh, or maybe just explain how pregnancy is a state of insulin resistance and then how that, how that undulates through the uh, three trimesters. Yeah. So the body is so incredible um, in its ability to grow a human. And like I had kind of touched on earlier, it will use any resource that is available. And if that means it's at the expense of the maternal health, that sometimes happens. And so when we think about pregnancy, as soon as you get pregnant in that first trimester, and we kind of define the first trimester as from conception to about 12 weeks, we actually see an immediate increase in insulin production from the pancreas. So the pancreas starts putting out baseline, almost 30% more insulin. The good news in the first trimester is that you actually have an increase in insulin sensitivity. So this isn't necessarily the trimester where you're like, I need to really restrict my carbs. And even some of my low carb and even carnivore type patients will find that they're going to have much different affinity to food. I mean, even my most meat-based patients are like, doc, I can't even look at a steak. Like I'm, they're nauseous. They feel horrible sometimes. And so this isn't necessarily the trimester where you need to be eating super restrictive. You need to be getting some calories. You need to be getting some nutrients in, but we have pretty good insulin sensitivity in the first trimester. Now, if you come into pregnancy insulin resistant and you don't know it, we do early um, insulin resistance screening in pregnancy. And if you fail a glucose challenge um, during this this time, you're more likely probably a type two diabetic or pre-diabetic. And it's not really related to the physiologic insulin resistance that happens in pregnancy because that happens more second and really mostly in the third trimester. So as we move into the second trimester, people start feeling better, the blood sugars become much more regulated. And as we move through the second trimester, we've got great development of the placenta and the body's job is to make sure that there are available fuel sources, both glucose and fatty acids. So both of these are important substrates for energy, um, for the baby. Then we do glucose screening at 28 weeks because in the third trimester is where the greatest amount of physiologic insulin resistance happens. And like I said, it is physiologic. It is purposeful for the body to create this insulin resistance because what happens is it's maintaining maternal appetite, right? Every pregnant woman knows they, they, they have a great appetite. They have tons of cravings, especially once you get into that third trimester. And it's to have glucose and fatty acids readily available for that growing baby. Um, The problem is, is that if you're abusing carbohydrates in the diet at this stage, we're going to see excessive growth of the baby. We're going to see excessive growth of the baby's pancreas. We not only see large babies, but studies, the hyperglycemia and adverse outcome trial was one of the largest studies looking at insulin resistance in pregnancy and the long-term effects, not only for the mom, but for these babies. So even if you pass that glucose test, I always say the most dangerous patient is one that thinks they don't have insulin resistance, but they fail the number. It is a complete linear relationship. If you look at this study, it's, and we just had to pick a cutoff somewhere, but, but there's a complete linear relationship between your level of of glucose and insulin and outcomes for your baby, the baby's long-term risk of obesity and, and type two diabetes. Now, the one thing I really want to make clear for people is that The reason it's really dangerous to think you're okay and you're not is because if a woman has normal blood glucose levels, so I do offer my patients 
in place of traditional glucose tolerance tests to just check their blood sugars with their diet, right? So let's say a woman, uh, she gets the glucometer, she's poking her fingers, she's checking fasting blood sugars in the morning, two hours after every meal, and the numbers look good. Okay, great. Blood sugars are normal. We always have to be asking ourselves at the cost of what amount of insulin, because remember we said the pancreas increases insulin production and insulin's job is to move glucose into the cells. We always have to say at the cost of what amount of insulin, because we know hyperinsulinemia um, is actually what drives a lot of the complications. And um, a little known fact that I really wasn't ever taught in obstetric training is hyperinsulinemia increases the risk for preeclampsia. So even if you don't have gestational diabetes and you develop preeclampsia, it could be due to hyperinsulinemia. Well, the one way to control us from secreting excessive amounts of insulin is to control carbohydrate intake. So in this third trimester is where it's really important. Some women may need really low amounts of carbs. Some may, may be able to eat higher amounts. I think there's a lot of controversy based on recommendations in pregnancy. You know, they have had really come out. Um, the, the Institute of Medicine kind of said nothing less than 150 grams of carbs. I think that's extremely liberal. There was just a, a new study out just a couple of months ago showing um, more positive outcomes when women consumed 100 grams or less. So this is, of course, very individualized. We, of course, want normal blood sugars, but we also have to recognize that hyperinsulinemia can cause problems too. So depending what trimester you are, as we get closer to delivery, we really want to be controlling carb intake. And most, I mean, let's be honest, you know, Dr. Esma, most of the, the carbs we're talking about are when people are consuming these processed foods with highly processed fat, you know, they're, they're not getting gestational diabetes from eating blueberries and carrots. <laughs> you know, that that's really the, the crux of a lot of the problems that we have here in America, but an important time to control what's going on with glucose and insulin. Let's talk numbers for a moment. So when you know, I mean, I, I'm trying to think, I probably did my uh, gestational diabetes, like the glucose challenge, probably somewhere between, I don't know, week 24 to 28, like kind of on the cusp of uh, the third trimester, somewhere there. And they sat me down and had this absolutely disgusting 75 gram, you know, glucola nastiness. Yeah. And then I had to sit there for two hours and they took my blood. Uh, they took my blood work afterwards. They took it pre and then post. So they're looking for this, uh, you know, they're probably looking for a baseline, like, you know, what's your, and I, I had come in yep, fast. So we want to fast blood glucose level less than 90. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Less than 95. And then what is the postprandial cutoff for a woman to say that, at least in, in terms of glucose, we'll talk about insulin in a moment, but at, at least in terms of the glucose numbers, what is the target that we want to see after two hours? 
Yeah. So you did a two hour glucose tolerance test, which uses a fasted blood glucose level and then a 75 gram oral glucose challenge. And then we check it one hour and two hours after now different clinics will use different cutoffs for that particular test. And there's a lot of controversy around the world about what screening method is best. In, um, in, in our practice, we use a one hour glucose tolerance test as a screening test. So we use a 50 gram. So it doesn't require the fasting. Most clinics will use 140 as a cutoff. I actually use 130. I'd rather catch more women with insulin resistance. And I mean, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather be more conservative. Most studies, of course, look at cost analysis of diagnosing them with gestational diabetes and the increasing interventions or ultrasounds or things like that. But because my practice is so nutrition forward, I have a lower cutoff, especially after looking at the data from the HAPO trials. Um, if they fail that test, they either start checking their blood sugars um, or they go on to complete a three hour test. And I, I get to be the martyr. I had to do it with every single pregnancy. So I feel sympathetic to these women that have to do these tests because they're, they're, they're not fun. And you do have to sit there for many hours. And, um, and then once you have the diagnosis, then, then you start checking your blood sugars. And what we're really looking for when you start checking your blood sugars is a fasting blood sugar level less than 95, a one hour after a meal, it should be less than 140. And two hours after a meal, it should be less than 120. So normal to see a rise after you eat, but it really should return to baseline um, after that two hour mark. Right. Because if you're still hanging around at 140, two hours after you've consumed, let's call it 75 grams of of glucose, you know that there's going to be some, like the, those islet cells of the pancreas, like there's going to be damage happening to these, these cells. And looping in insulin for a moment, you know, you correctly said that you know, the glucose doesn't tell the entire story that you can pass one of these tests. You can, you can get that postprandial cutoff at 130, maybe if it's in your clinic or 140 or 120, two hours postprandial, but your pancreas could be working like one mofo, like that, you know, the amount of output of insulin in order to create uh, the appearance of normal glucose regulation is also, I think, something that you, I, I love what you said around looking at insulin as well. So can we talk a little bit about insulin numbers and what, uh, if you are doing a fasted, uh, ins- if you're j- drawing blood, what are some of the numbers that you would like to see? Well, outside of pregnancy, I like to see fasting insulin levels less than five, less than 10. We're probably doing okay. Cause there's some nuance with doing the testing and what time of the day it is. And when you last ate and things like that. But the problem is we don't have a lot of data on insulin levels in pregnancy. So it's not some, it's not a biomarker that really a patient could check at home. It has to be done, you know, by serum with a blood draw. Um, and it's not a marker that I even use in pregnancy, but it's always something in the back of my head that we have to be thinking about, even if they have normal, normal glucose levels. The other thing I want to talk about is that the other energy substrate besides glucose and fatty acids that crosses the placenta is ketones. And it's normal in the third trimester for women to produce ketones. They're more likely to go into a state of ketogenesis because we are always making sure that there's an energy substrate available for the baby. In traditional gestational diabetes treatment, people are having these women check their urine. If there's ketones, everybody gets in a tizzy and gets worked up. There is no correlation between urinary ketone levels and serum ketone levels. So 
I do not recommend testing for urine ketones if you're a gestational diabetic. Um, we know that this is a normal process. Now, obviously, if you are a type 1 diabetic or a type 2 diabetic coming into pregnancy, it, it's something we want to keep an eye on. If you don't have a functioning pancreas, then you could get into a state of, of ketoacidosis. But um, urinary ketones really have no correlation. And then we know from umbilical cord studies that babies actually make their own ketones too. This is a great energy substrate that's used for myelin of the brain. So we need to, you know, be less afraid of the presence of ketones. Now the, the goal is not to be in a state of ketosis. I get direct messages all the time from women. Can I start a ketogenic diet in pregnancy? We have to be careful about the level of carbs. Zero isn't the answer. The goal is normal glucose, normal insulin. If you have ketones, that's okay. But, but we have to always think about, we have two, two humans physiologies that we're trying to balance. Yeah. And I think that that's going to vary widely based on the fitness of the mom, you know, her history, her nutritional history, her fitness history, and then the other pillars that you were talking about, her stress management, her sleep, all of those things. And that's going to change. You know, I, when I first started doing keto, uh, granted it was after I had my babies, but I was like, absolutely like this many carbs, like zero carbs. We're doing no carbs. Carbs are the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> carbs are the enemy right? And of course, um, over time, I have come to the conclusion that I don't think that it's particularly for women that we shouldn't be in ketosis all the time. Uh, I think that there's a, um, you know, a, a place for that, like for, you know, oscillating um, whether or not you're in a ketogenic state. And I like to do, and we've talked about this on your pod based on, you know, if you're a menstruating woman, like where you are based on your menstrual cycle, there's going to be uh, different proclivities. Like, you know, I, I'm, um, I'm in, uh, my pre ovulatory week now. So like now's a time where I want to lift heavy and I want to have a lot of protein just generally, okay. because I like to pair that with testosterone, but, um, coming, coming back to, uh, gestational diabetes, just for a moment, if someone does fail, so let's say you have someone who fails, what is the management for that patient while they're pregnant? And then what happens after the baby is delivered? Is there a, you know, should there be a conversation that's happening with that, with that mother where okay. we're talking about her metabolic health, if she wants to have another baby or if she just wants to do some metabolic therapy on, um, you know, on herself, given that she was, um, that she wasn't able to pass that glucose uh, challenge test. Absolutely. So that was, so that was me failed the glucose testing in pregnancy after my third daughter didn't really do anything about it and was eventually diagnosed with prediabetes. And I come from a long family history of normal BMI diabetics. So they're not the obese people, but on a cellular level, like just have all the insulin resistance genes just simply cannot eat a high carbohydrate diet. And so if you get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, the one thing you are in control of is what you're eating. And I find that almost 99% of my patients can control these levels with dietary influence alone. Um, it's very, very rare for any of my patients to need medication. Um, and so just know that you have a lot of control. Um, we basically start paring down the carbohydrates with the meals until the blood glucose levels are normal. And I have had some patients where it's literally meats and vegetables and, and can't even do any fruit just to get the numbers to be normal. But it's important that the numbers are normal because that will reduce the complications of birth. It will reduce the risk that your baby gets admitted to the NICU for blood sugar dysregulation postpartum because what's happening is if your blood glucose is high and that crosses the placenta, your baby's 
pancreas is going to start putting out more insulin as well. And then as soon as they're born and you cut the umbilical cord and now their physiology has to maintain on its own. If that baby doesn't breastfeed well, they're likely to get hypoglycemia. They're likely to have a lot of electrolyte disturbances because it and they do have higher NICU admission rates. Not only that, but they can be larger and they're not just globally large. Gestational diabetic babies tend to have a lot of truncal adiposity. They have wide shoulders and big chests, a higher risk of things like shoulder dystocia. Um, and so it, it's a big deal to keep your blood sugars normal. And also, like I said, hyperinsulinemia increases, increases the risk of preeclampsia. So if you're a gestational diabetic, you are at a higher risk of getting um, high blood pressures of pregnancy and preeclampsia. And these are scary things for, for pregnant women and their babies. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with the larger head as well, I mean, that it, it, as you were saying, it, it increases the risk for birth complications. And if possible, if it's, you know, if the mom wants it, we want to be encouraging vaginal births, right? Because this is where yep. the microbiome of the baby, you know, as babies passing through the birth, con uh, uh, the birth canal, all those contractions, you know, baby is taking in some of the flora uh, from, from the vagina and that becomes baby's microbiome eventually and, you know, her, his or her, uh, you know, the basis for his or her immune system or the, and, you know, it's, it's like that old saying, like, I got it from my mama. Like, yeah, we pass on, like the one thing we pass on, like the thing you do get from mom is your mitochondrial lineage. And part of that happens through that vaginal, um, um, uh, passage through the, through the birth canal. So, um, yeah, our skin flora is seeded by the vaginal microbiome. And so we know that babies born vaginally and those born by C-section have different skin flora. Now breastfeeding, if you end up having to have a C-section, um, breastfeeding can help establish that microbiome within the gut. It can help with skin flora problems, but, um, we do know that there, there is a difference in, in long-term health outcomes for babies born that way. Let's talk about postpartum. So, uh, you have baby. Let's let's talk a little bit about breastfeeding, um, and let's talk a little bit about ketones as well, because I think that you know you sort of mentioned it already that we get so scared about seeing ketones, but this is really so important for um, for baby. And I've you know I've heard you talk about how you know once baby starts you know suckling, you know that we all we all of a sudden are seeing that that monocarboxylic acid transporter you know being upregulated. Baby's like ketones are coming, baby. Like you know let's talk a little bit about the importance of breastfeeding and uh, potentially co like caloric requirements that mom has, and then maybe what types of foods she might consider to help, um, to help sort of, you know, I mean, breast milk is already liquid gold, but how can we just like yeah. zhuzh it up, if you will? Absolutely. So in pregnancy, caloric requirements, I always kind of think of it as like, only about an extra hundred calories in the first trimester, 200 in the second and 300 in the third. But for breastfeeding a singleton baby, almost 500 extra calories. So you do need a lot more nutrition. And of course you'd kind of touched on it earlier. This is the time where the woman's like, I got to get this weight off. You know, I, I got to lose this baby weight. We, we have to be very careful if we're breastfeeding about maintaining a good supply and you do need an extra 500 calories per day all the same foods that were super nutrition and pregnancy, nutritious and pregnancy are, are, are still great for breastfeeding and controlling carb intake is still important, but you can have carbs while you're breastfeeding. This isn't the time to deliver the baby and then go, oh, I'm going to go keto <laughs> because an, an abrupt drop in carbohydrates can affect milk supply, mostly due to electrolyte um, depletion and, and free body water depletion. And so we have to be very careful about doing things kind of slowly and subtly if we're going to make some 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 changes but 
breast milk has carbs in it also has tons of fat in it. So we want to be eating protein, fatty meats, eggs, organ meats are great. Fruits and vegetables are fine. Um, certainly there are some babies that tend to have some dietary preferences. And we even notice in utero that foods that mom eat in pregnancy, that babies actually can sense those things within the breast milk, but breast milk is so powerful. There's more than just nutrients in there. So more than glucose, fatty acids, and ketones, um, there's immunoglobulins that are in bacteria. The mom, it's so fascinating. The mom, especially in COVID world, everything that she comes into contact with, her body is creating things. And there's actually some regurgitation of breast milk at the level of the nipple that actually sends a message back into the mom's body. The baby is telling the mom's body exactly what it needs to protect itself. So it's so, it's such an incredible, important thing. And we have to do a better job of supporting breastfeeding mothers um, because you have to breastfeed often. The, the newborn baby's stomach is like about the size of a grape. And there's a reason that they have to eat very frequently because they empty that stomach very quickly. Babies go in and out of ketosis very readily because they don't have the fat stores that we have. And so we want to make sure that the baby is, this is such a rapid time of development of their brain. Um, the first two years of their life are extremely important for, for neurologic development not only feeding them, but just touching them. I was just sharing on a podcast, and this is just slightly off of our breastfeeding nutrition topic, but I was just talking on another podcast. I recorded this study that came out of Rhode Island university this year, COVID babies, and it had nothing to do with the actual virus, but have on average lower IQ scores by 22% and, or 22 points, excuse me. And most of it was due to the lack of interaction and touch that these babies were getting during the pandemic, because uh, we're not going out into society. They're not seeing people's faces. Uh, it's, it's just in, incredible what happens in the first two years of development for that baby. So um, make, sure you're, make sure you're getting adequate calories, lots of healthy fats, lots of protein, and then and, and moderate carbs. This isn't the time to start eating all the processed carbs and garbage again, but things like sweet potatoes and rice uh, and fruit are, are totally fine. I, um, I remember having patients, you know, bringing their babies to the clinic and, you know, like showing them off like a proud mama bear and, and, you know, sometimes some of those moms were like, okay, well, it's time for me now to lose the weight. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, stop the breastfeeding so that I can like, you know, kind of get back to my pre baby body. And, you know, as a clinician, you always want to, you know, meet your patient where they are. Like you never want to superimpose your own beliefs um, in terms of what you think that they should do based on what you might do in, in the same situation, but you still want to, you know, maybe educate them on the consequences, benefits and consequences of that um, decision. And I, all, like I, my, for my first baby, I, I breastfed my first son, I want to say it was like 18, 19 months. Um, and then baby number two, uh, almost three years, like just shy of th three years. And I always found that when I was breastfeeding, like kind of talking a little bit about this, like pressure to get the baby, you know, the, the pre baby body back. Um, for me, when I was breastfeeding, I actually felt like the weight came off of the places that I would have wanted to come off anyway. Like my breasts look like I had a boob job. Like they totally look augmented, like all the time I would wake up and I was like, oh my God, I need to find my child or else I'm going to explode. Yeah. And then my, you know, my hips, my bum, my abdomen, like areas that I temp typically put weight on, that's where I typically found that I, that I shed, um, the weight. And I wondered if you could, uh, and that just may be an N of one, that may just be my experience, but I, I wanted to have you comment on um, 
you know, a mom who is breastfeeding, you know, if she is also, if she's, if she's done all the things that we've been talking about, maybe preconception, she's become fat adapted. She's been having meats and vegetables flew through the gestational diabetes challenge. No problem with her there. Uh, normal size baby, all the things. Um, and she's able to, you know, prioritize her protein, have the meats and veg, et cetera. Where is she going to draw or do you have a sense of if there's areas in the body, is it going to be the adipocyte? Is she going to be drawing from the adipocyte for breast milk production or are we sacrifice, do we sacrifice muscle first? What is your understanding term, in terms of like the, mechani- the mechanism around how breast milk is um, made? Yeah. So, you know, I, I highlighted the importance 500 extra calories per day, but we even know in parts of the world where food is a scarcity that these women, a lot of times can still go through lactation and, and make enough milk to feed a baby, or there's some parts of the world where women are going out into the fields to farm for many hours. They're, they're basically practicing intermittent fasting and they're still able to maintain a supply. So it's going to be different for, for every single individual. Um, And you can be in a calorie deficit, you know, let's say you don't eat extra 500 and you eat at maintenance, and that may be a way to get the body fat off. Um, But, but we just have to be careful. And the fastest way to get there is slowly. I mean, that's the thing that women need to hear is this, this can't be anything extreme and rapid. It's going to have to be slow. Exercise is great. And that is an extra way to create a little bit of a deficit. And I think that exercise is great at reducing postpartum depression. It makes the woman feel good. If she's doing resistance training, it's going to help protect the lean body mass, but she's got to be getting adequate dietary protein for that to happen. If you don't eat adequate dietary protein, there's only one store of amino acids, and that's going to start going after your tissue, like your muscle, um, fat would be something that you could moderate, you know, uh, maybe you don't have to put a, you know, a bunch of extra olive oil or butter or things like that, you know, into your meals. Um, and then carbs, we want to eat them at our threshold. So if you pass the glucose screening and you're doing great, then you, you know, certainly could have some berries or some rice or something like that, especially around times of, of activity and movement. But like I said, we just have to do it really, really slowly. Um, and babies as they're growing too, you know, certain times they need more calories as they're going through a growth spurt. And then you might hit your stride where they're kind of in maintenance and then they'll have another growth spurt again. And so we just want to make sure that we're getting babies to the breast as often as we can. And if you have to supplement, it's not the end of the world. We don't have anything that can absolutely replace breast milk, but, um, it's, it's amazing to have that option to be able to feed our babies. I remember when my both sons, but I remember particularly your first one. You always remember everything about your first baby. And I remember at the end of one day, I was like, my boobs have been working for eight hours. Like, I feel like they have a full-time job. Like I have been in a chair and that's all I've, you know, that's all I've been able to do is like feed the baby and then, you know, change the baby. And then maybe, I don't know, something. And then I'm feeding the baby again. Um, so it definitely is. Um, and thank God for my midwives. Like I started off with an OB and then moved to, um, to have uh, midwives take care of me. And one of them was a lactation consultant. Like, thank God for these women because I had apps. I read all the books. I was like, oh, I have the football and the cross this and that. And I had no clue what I was doing. When the baby was there, it's like I had all thumbs. Like, thank God for these women because they saved my breastfeeding experience. That was something I was just absolutely adamant that I wanted to do. If you haven't seen another woman in your life breastfeed, it can be very intimidating for first time moms. Um, The other thing I wanted to touch on was that women who come into pregnancy with insulin resistance, first time baby, 
your breasts actually don't go through their final stage of development until you go through pregnancy and lactation. And women who come into pregnancy insulin resistant can a lot of times have hypoplastic breast tissue and are at risk for low milk supply. So if you have a history of insulin resistance, if you've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, you are the patient that's actually at much an increased risk for low milk supply. So you want to make sure you're working with a lactation consultant, trying to optimize as much breast milk as you can. And every drop they can get is amazing. Let's talk a little bit about thyroid. Um, because I, uh, you had mentioned that you, after baby number one, you were put on medication diagnosed with hypothyroidism. And it's also been my observation that multi-parous women, like baby moms with like two, it's usually like around the three, like mom of three, mom of four. Um, this is where, you know, say, I, I was saying this uh, a little bit uh, to you before we started recording that the thyroid's like, no, I'm not, I'm not down with this. This is like, I quit. So how can we support um, well, let, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, um, how we can support our thyroids all through, you know, pregnancy. And then, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, maybe a little bit of the, we'll call it fallacy around re the requirement that women need carbs to support the thyroid. So let's talk about thyroid health generally, and then maybe let's yeah. m talk a little bit about how, um, if we, what your opinion is on, do we need carbohydrates in order to support the thyroid? So hypothyroidism, much more common in women than it is in men. Hypothyroidism worldwide, of course, iodine deficiency tends to be the most common reason. Second to that is autoimmune disorders like Hashimoto's, where a woman actually creates antibodies that attack her own thyroid and eventually attack it so much that it destroys the cells that make thyroid hormone. And some of these women, if they don't intervene at, a, at an early enough stage, can sometimes become dependent on thyroid medication. Insulin resistance is a common cause of hypothyroidism, and that's likely why I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism, had to go on medication, and why I was able to come off of thyroid medication once I fixed my insulin resistance. A baby is dependent on a mother's thyroid production um, until the baby can actually develop its own thyroid gland within its neck. And so it's important to know, you know, what your thyroid function is preconception. There's a lot of controversy. It's not part of traditional um, new obstetric screening to screen for thyroid disorders um, unless there's some sort of history. But I have a very low threshold for screening and seeing what thyroid production looks like because of the importance in pregnancy. The thyroid, um, think of it as, you know, we kind of think of it as like the metabolism, like the, in, the engine of the body. And we know that in a state of a caloric deficit, we will see a reduction in thyroid function. We see that outside of pregnancy across all diets. If you're dieting in general, we will see a reduction in thyroid production. And if you, uh, and that's why extreme dieting will sometimes cause infertility because the body's saying through those nutrient sensing pathways, hey, there's not enough resources, probably not a good time to grow a baby. And so we have to respect that, that calories matter for, for our thyroid, but there's a lot of other micronutrients required for thyroid production. So things like um, zinc, magnesium, selenium are all important parts of thyroid production. And the reason that multiparous women, so they're on their second, third, fourth, fifth pregnancy is the nutrient depletions that happen in pregnancy. It on average takes three years 
of good nutrition to replete those nutrients. Now, I don't know about any women listening, but my girls are 23 months apart. And I <laughs> Same. See this you know, <laughs> yeah, wait a yeah. year, get pregnant again, wait a year. Like my husband's like, dude, let's stay in the baby stage for the shortest amount of time possible. Like, let's just knock these out. We have to understand your body has literally grown another human. And then if you're breastfeeding, we talked about the amount of calories and nutrients need to grow that human. So some of these women are in a major, major, major nutrient deficit. And so a lot of times the way to correct that is to really start focusing on a very nutrient dense diet. Don't be in too low of a calorie deficit and to just start kind of nurturing the thyroid. This idea that the thyroid needs carbs I don't think that zero carb is the answer, but certainly like I've highlighted abuse of excessive carbs can also cause a problem. And so it's going to be different for every single person. But when we look at the studies on people who are actually in therapeutic ketosis, when we look at the trials on children with epilepsy that were undergoing therapeutic ketosis to control their seizures, these scientists have followed thyroid levels. And although we sometimes will see a reduction in the T3 hormone, which is the active thyroid hormone, we don't see a concomitant rise in TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. And so it doesn't really fit the picture of overt hypothyroidism clinically, because I take care of a lot of patients that, that, you know, subscribe to low carbon ketogenic lifestyles. I don't really see it clinically either. I will sometimes see them run lower on T3, you know, maybe at 2.5 but they don't have hypothyroidism, you know, classic symptoms. They're not constipated. They're not cold, you know, these types of things. And we don't see an elevation in TSH. And so this idea that you have to eat, you know, a moderately uh, carb dense diet for thyroid function, I don't think is, is necessarily good advice either. It's interesting because, um, one of the more common questions that I get, uh, around the ketogenic program that I formulated for women is, oh, I have hypothyroidism. Is it going to, is this going to make it worse? So there's this, almost this persistent, um, I'll say misinformation, uh, you know, where you, there's this idea that if you do go low carb, that you are going to mess up the thyroid in some way. And I would, I often find that it is my hypothyroid or, you know, we all, we often know that hypothyroidism is just on the continuum for Hashimoto's, um, thyroiditis. It's often those women that have the most profound results when they do start decreasing their carbohydrates, when they do start increasing their protein and their fat, that we actually see thyroid thyroid function, um, restored. And it's, it's interesting because, um, and maybe this is just my little, my own little beef or my own little, you know, seeds to sow, but you know, people will say, Oh, I'm on Synthroid. Like I'm on, you know, I'm on this medication. Like they have absolutely no qualms about jumping on a thyroid medication, but you know, you talk to them about nutrition and they're like, Oh, but isn't that going to ruin my thyroid? And it's like, no, it's, uh, I, at least, at least I can say clinically, that hasn't been my observation. Um, yeah. with- I think that people, um, they want like an answer for why they can't lose weight or they feel X, Y, Z symptom. And then the doctor says, well, you've got some, you know, mild subclinical hypothyroidism. Let's put you on this thyroid medication. I think there's this perception out there that that will be like, some sort of magic. Okay. This thyroid replacement is going to like make all the weight fall off. And I'm going to like start feeling better. Um, you have to ask like, why is the thyroid doing that? Like, what are we not giving the body? Because, you know, 50, hundred years ago, people didn't have the level of hypothyroidism that we see today. So I'm with you. I, I always see too, one of the things that, um, I will give, um, 
uh, like clients, uh, quizzes to take and like some subjective quizzes. They're not diagnostic by any, uh, stretch, but, um, that they often run estrogen, that their estrogen levels are often rampant, that they are, their estrogen levels are running unchecked. And I, I say estrogen dominance. And what I mean by that is of course, estrogen dominance relative to progesterone in the luteal phase of the cycle, but that's just a mouthful. So we all just say estrogen dominance. Okay. And I would, I would argue, and I, I would, I would love your um, thoughts on this around estrogen dominance um, potentially affecting thyroid function. Mm-hmm. So we have estrogen receptors in our thyroid. And if you make excessive amounts of estrogen, you can drive up some of our proteins that bind hormones. And one of those being um, thyroid binding globulin. So we have sex hormone binding globulin, we have thyroid binding globulin. And so in people that make excessive amounts of estrogen, um, they can increase this TBG thyroid binding globulin, and you can bind up a lot of your free hormones. And so then the body will say, okay, well then there's not enough. And then it will start to, you know, try to keep up and then it can't keep up. And women will develop hypothyroidism related to excessive amounts of estrogen. Well, if you kind of trace it back, why are they making excessive amounts of estrogen? It's likely an increase in body fat. So they're obese or they have insulin resistance. I'm sure in 10 years, I'm going to just go ahead and throw my $20 on the table here in Las Vegas. We're going to find out it probably has something to do with dysbiosis or the microbiome. These, all of these little dominoes are connected. I mean, let's be real. They're all connected. So if you change one thing, it's going to change something else, but, um, excessive amounts of estrogen can also affect thyroid. I wanted to, um, I know that you're just coming off of clinic and you've jumped onto this pod. So I want to be respectful of your time and make sure that you have some time to be with your girls uh, tonight. I wanted to maybe just touch on infertility. There's so many other, we're going to have to have you back on for another conversation because there's so many other places I want to have a discussion with you about. But I do... um, I do want to talk about infertility because this is something that, you know, when I was even just growing up, never really heard about it. You know, maybe there's the odd, you know, second cousin's friend of a friend of a friend. Um, And now there's, you know, um, uh, clinics everywhere. uh, I would say, yeah, it's, it's rampant. And um, even when I had my babies uh, 11 and nine years ago, starting to hear more and more about it, but now it just seems like, every, every one and every, you know, in some way has been touched by this. So I want I know that it's not, and I, I want to talk about just some misconceptions as well. I've had a couple of guests on that really have talked about this idea that it's not just, you know, female centric that where, why, uh, couples are infertile more often than not, it can be male derived. Um, but I wanted to just touch on, uh, infertility as a topic. And then in, in that, um, maybe leaving the male reasons uh, on the shelf for now, like we can just mention them, yeah. but talking about some of the female centric reasons why a couple might be having uh, trouble conceiving. Yeah. So we have to acknowledge that there's male infertility. Um, and so in that 30% of the time it's that, and it's, it may be higher because men have a lot of the same, same lifestyle problems that women have. And it, makes bad sperm. But when we think about female infertility, so about a third of the time, male, a third of the time, female, and then a third of the time we do all the testing, it all looks completely normal and we have unexplained infertility. So what are reasons why we see female infertility? Okay. So there's really, I kind of split it into two things. One is we need ovulation to happen. So we need the egg 
to create a dominant follicle, we needed to release an oocyte that is available for fertilization. Okay. When we talk about menstrual cycles, a regular menstrual cycle, meaning, you know, 28 to maybe 34 days would be the normal longest cycle. I would see if you're menstruating regularly, that's pretty good indication that you're probably ovulating because that ovulation is what triggers corpium production. The progesterone is what triggers the next cycle and so on and so on. You can do ovulation predictor kits so you can try to test your, your LH surge. Um, there's lots of new technology that's coming out, but just a, a regular cycle is really what we're looking for. So if you're irregularly menstruating, if you're not producing that progesterone, you may not be actually releasing an egg. The other thing is that egg quality matters. We're starting to see, you know, people who actually go through fertility treatments that we're seeing poor oocyte quality. And so a woman is born with all the eggs she will ever have in her lifetime. Once we hit menstruation, we only release a couple hundred of those eggs in a woman's lifetime. So every single month that goes by, the pituitary gland in the brain is yelling at the ovary and saying, hey, who wants to come to the party and about 15, 20 people are supposed to raise their hand. And then the body picks the, the best one. And that's the one that's supposed to be released. So part of infertility is that we're seeing a delayed onset of childbearing. So women are waiting longer to try to get pregnant. And the closer you get to age 35, there's an increased chance that there's not going to be a lot of quality follicles left in the ovary um, to ovulate a good egg. So age really does matter. Um, also nutrition really matters. So all these things we talked about, stress, sleep, movement, all these things matter because they affect that communication between the pituitary gland and the ovary. And for somebody like me with insulin resistance, PCOS, my doctor was like, I think you need metformin. I think you need Clomid because the insulin resistance dysregulates the FSH and LH secretion. We see an increasing amount of testosterone production from the ovary. We see this insulin resistance at the ovary that increases the testosterone production, sometimes other adrenal hormones like DHEAS, and that can inhibit ovulation. So we need an egg to be released. The other part of it for women is that we need structurally the egg to be able to get through the tube down into the uterus to be fertilized by sperm. So if you've ever had a, a pelvic infection, sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia in particular is very good at scarring the tubes, um, but we need those tubes to be open and we need you know, a normal uterus. So other structural things like septums, polyps, fibroids can also, you know, be at play. So it's super complex, but we are, we're seeing more women with infertility issues related to lifestyle. I mean, related to lifestyle, a lot of them are, a lot of them isn't, you know, we don't find a lot of septums and bicornary uteruses. Um, people are waiting too long and they're not, they're not taking care of their body. That's, that's just the real honest answer. Yeah. And I, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, our beautiful men, we, you know, men are the seed, but women are the soil, right? We really need to be thinking about how we can be optimizing for, and you, you mentioned it before, you know, the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. I think our fertility as women, this is something that whether or not you want to have a baby, um, this is something that we need to be optimizing for. And I love the pillars um, that we've kind of been revisiting over and over again through our conversation with the exercise, the nutrition, the sleep, the environment, because these are the things that are going to optimize for that soil. These are the things that are going to optimize for that, you know, that fertile ground uh, in order to, you know, plant a seed and see it grow. So uh, I just love that. And I think, um, I, I think that you're, you're right. A lot of women are waiting, uh, 
you know, we want to have careers and there's, you know, there's nothing, obviously nothing wrong with that. That's something you know, I chose to, I had my first baby when I was 32, second baby when I was 34. Um, you know, my uh, mother-in-law at the time was like, you're waiting too long. <laughs> like she had, you know, her, her children she had in her twenties. Um, yeah. so we, we are seeing this sort of phase shift, uh, for women in terms of when they're ready to sort of settle down and have, and have babies. But it is important for them to understand with that decision, some of the consequences that may come from it. Yeah. Unfortunately, your optimal fertility is like from 18 to 24, which if you look around the world right now, there's not many 18 to 24 year olds that are looking to conceive. So it's just something we really have to to think about. Yeah. Well, Jamie, I think um, I want to have you back on. There's so many uh, places I wanted to uh, go with you. Uh, um, I wanted to talk about PCOS. I want to talk about perimenopause. We'll have to have you on for round two, um, but understanding that you've just come off a long shift and uh, I think your daughter might have come in during the show. <laughs> I have one little one down here. I'm like, you better, you better leave right now. That's the world we live in. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that's the balancing act, right? Uh, you know, being female practitioners, I think we are always balancing, you know, being, you know, having a servant's heart and being on top of the latest research and serving our patients. And then, of course, being, you know, the mama bear at home. So I wanted to thank you for your time. Every every time I get to, like, any time I get to spend time with you, it's always time well invested. And I know this is going to be absolutely wonderful for uh, my audience. So thank you for the time that you spent with me tonight. Yeah, it's really my honor. And I hope that the people listening get little pearls that they can use for themselves or share with other women. That's what's so amazing about, you know, this podcast is that it can be shared around the world. And uh, women need good information. Absolutely. And so if people want to follow you, find more about you, uh, tell them where they can find you. I know you got Instagram, um, anywhere else like, so drop the Instagram handle. Yeah, where else so can people find my you? My social is Dr. Fit and Fabulous. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook. I've got a website. I'm working on a book for 2022. So that's my, my big project that I'm working on. And, um, and your uh, podcast. Yeah. And the Fit and Fabulous podcast, which I have an episode with uh, with Dr. Estima. So go check it out. And uh, th- thank you guys for listening. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 